Welcome to Secrets True Crime, The Disappearance of Jessica Hamby. I am your host, Amber Sitton. What is done in darkness will eventually come to light. That is the purpose of this podcast, to shine light on the disappearance of Jessica Hamby. Listener discretion is advised. The subject matter may involve violence, sexual content, murder, and adult themes. This episode does contain foul language. It is not suitable for younger listeners. This is episode 15 of season three of a serialized podcast, and the episodes are designed to be listened to in order. Jessica Leanne Hamby has been missing since January 3rd, 2018. At the time of her disappearance, the 24-year-old mother of three was a beautiful brunette with big hazel eyes. She had a head full of long, thick hair, was five foot two inches tall, and weighed about 125 pounds. In the five years since Jessica was last reported to be seen, the stories regarding her disappearance and fate have been plentiful and the facts scarce. We are starting from the beginning, and by the beginning, we are beginning with Jessica's life six months prior to her disappearance, as we bring to you the findings of our investigation in real time. It has now been more than five years since Jessica was last known to be seen, and the release date of this episode is one day before the five-year anniversary of the missing persons report being filed. Jessica's family has some decisions to make now. In Alabama, after a person has been missing for five years, the family can petition the court to have her declared legally dead. If that happens, Alabama law states that the death is presumed to have occurred at the end of the period unless there is sufficient evidence for determining that death occurred earlier. That means the date of death on the death certificate would be 2023, and the statute of limitations for pursuing civil actions would start this year. The next steps are a heavy weight to bear, and the reality of it all is harsh. As you've heard, there are so many names that come up in Jessica's case. Some of them are rumored to be potential suspects or persons of interest. Some are said to be witnesses or accessories. And maybe some are accessories after the fact. The names are so plentiful that it can sometimes be hard to keep up. In the last episode, we told you 
we'd be digging deeper into the connections between the large number of people whose names often surface in Jessica's case. Some of these people lived in Hamilton. Some lived in the Haleyville, Winston County area. And some lived in Franklin County in Russellville and Phil Campbell. Generally speaking, these theories seem to have been viewed as separate theories and not as potentially connected. It was widely and inaccurately accepted for years that Jessica never left Elgin Cochran Road alive and that those last known to be with her on Elgin Cochran Road were it. When we began to publicly make connections to Jessica's disappearance and Jeremy Abbott's death in the Haleyville area, many expressed confusion as the groups of people surrounding Jeremy and Jessica were thought to be unrelated. We know that is not the reality, and we are going to lay out a significant number of connections between the people and groups, most often rumored to be associated with Jessica's disappearance. Some of these people you've heard about in previous episodes, and this will be the first time we've discussed others. Other than what is contained in the Nelos reports from Jessica and Eric Edwards' phone records, we don't have location data for January 2nd and 3rd, 2018, the last times Jessica was said to be seen alive. However, after those dates, location data suddenly began recording in the Facebook records for many of these people. This data is quite revealing. On January 3rd, at 2.24 p.m., Eric Edwards' location began recording in his Facebook records. Interestingly enough, Alicia Motes began recording three minutes later, and both Eric and Alicia were at the Edwards property on Elgin Cochran Road. The location data for David Shane Reynolds did not begin until much later, on February 15th. The location data from Facebook is only present when Facebook or Messenger are used, so the frequency and number of location points varies by each individual's usage of the apps. Eric and Alicia didn't appear to use the app quite as often as others like David Shane Reynolds and Andre Newell. On January 12th, 2018, Eric Edwards' location data showed him to be at a home located in South Haleyville. We identified who lived in that home, and it was a name we recognized. This man was a known drug dealer and is someone we know was with Jeremy Abbott at least once within the few weeks before his disappearance. To clarify, we aren't suggesting that he had any involvement in Jeremy's disappearance, but instead are relaying the connections between the parties. The man who lived in this South Haleyville home is also a friend of Jessica's mom, Lynn, 
and Jessica's former stepdad, Cody Ballard. The man actually lived with them for a while, sometime after Jessica's disappearance. Eric's next recorded stop that day put him inside a property owned by relatives of Jessica's on her mom's side of the family. This home was also located in the Haleyville area. We will come back to more on Eric's location data in a bit. David Shane Reynolds was also found to have spent time in Haleyville. In the wee hours of the morning, on February 19th, 2018, Shane was communicating with a woman through Messenger. At 2.39 a.m., he sent her a message that said, I'll be in shop. I've got it moved around. The message seems out of context for their conversation. She replied, what? And he responded with the word, nothing. We suspect that Shane intended that message for someone else and sent it to this woman in error. Note that Shane lives in a home with his father near the end of Elgin Cochran Road. If you pull into the yard, following the tire tracks that serve as the driveway, the house would be to the right and a little in front of your car. On your left is a large metal shed painted white, about 15 feet tall, 15 feet wide, and 20 to 30 feet deep. A set of 10-foot-tall double doors are off-center on the front of the structure, and a basketball goal is mounted above them. There is a normal-sized door on the right side facing the back of the property and hidden from the main road. The shed is surrounded by random junk, a filing cabinet, hand truck, garbage cans, and five-gallon buckets, gas jugs, and other discarded trash. There are some words painted in different colors on the inside of the door to the shed. The words appear to have been written by two different people. At the top in orange and green, the words say, Shane is one fine-ass man. Below that in red, in a different handwriting style, it says, If you close your eyes. This shed appears to be sort of a man cave for Shane, and we are told he spends a good bit of time there. In Shane's location data, his recorded positions are very distinct between him being in the house And out at the shed, we will post some photos of Shane's shed for you to see on our Patreon site. At the time the message was sent about the shed, Shane was at home. Approximately an hour and a half later, by 4.09 a.m., Shane was at a home next door to the Edwards property, and he stayed there for about 40 minutes. His next location placed him on the Edwards property next door to Edwards Trust, close to the home where Raymond's employee, Dale Williams, lived. By 5.27 a.m., 
Shane's location pinned him in downtown Hackleburg, about a block and a half from City Hall and the police department. His next recorded location was at a home in Bear Creek, and then he stopped briefly at a home on Newburgh Road in Haleyville at 5.48 a.m. I don't know about you guys, but for me, this is awfully early for visiting hours. Shane then drove to a home that was rather notorious in the Haleyville area. It was owned by someone that was described to us as a big drug dealer. The home was also said to be a well-known party house. Shane next made a quick stop at a convenience store, and then he drove to the home of another well-known person in the area. This man was described as a drug dealer that moved a lot of weight in drugs, and he was a well-known meth cook. Shane's location data indicates he spent a couple hours or so at this residence, and then he continued on to another notorious location in the Haleyville area. This location was described to us as a trap house and a place where stolen property was often recovered. It was said that many of those in the area involved in drugs have probably stayed there at one time or another. It was even noted that J.K. Abbott had been known to stay there from time to time. Shane spent a couple hours there, and then he traveled to a familiar location in South Haleyville. After a brief stop in a church parking lot on the same street, Shane went to the very same home that Eric went to, where the man knew Jeremy Abbott and is a friend of Jessica's mom and former stepdad. Shane's next recorded location is an empty parking lot in downtown Haleyville. He stayed there for approximately 30 minutes. His next location shows him to be in between two rows of storage units at a storage facility located about a block from the empty parking lot he'd been in. It appears he was only there briefly, and then he went back to the parking lot. Next, he made a quick stop at the Haleyville Walmart, and then it appears that he made his way home after a long and hard six-hour tour of Haleyville dope and trap houses. This data should clear up much speculation and confusion as this clearly establishes that there was a strong connection between the group of drug-connected people in Haleyville and the group from Elgin Cochran Road that were with Jessica when she was last reported to be seen alive. But what about the group of people in East Franklin County whose names are so often rumored to be connected to Jessica's disappearance? Do strong connections exist there too? Alicia Moat's first location point of interest is the very last location captured for her on January 3rd, and it placed her on the roadway 
on Highway 43 in Russellville. Note that Alicia's next location point is over 10 hours later, so we have no idea where she was in between those times. Her next points were only about 50 miles away, so she clearly had some stops in between. In the coming weeks, Alicia had locations around Phil Campbell, which isn't a big surprise, since Alicia and Derek have both lived in that area of Franklin County for much of their lives. Alicia and Derek Motes alone would be enough to establish a connection between the group, last known to be with Jessica in the Hamilton-Hackleburg area, to the group in East Franklin County. Eric Edwards' location was also captured in Russellville. According to the data, on January 17th, Eric was located near the Greenwood Motel. And after that, he was at the Russellville Walmart for at least 40 minutes. The Greenwood Motel was Russellville's version of the Haleyville Motel. And it was notorious for an abundance of drug and other nefarious activities. This is the same motel we mentioned in a previous episode where Alicia Motes admitted to us this was the location in the photo of her beating on the woman that was cowering on the floor. David Shane Reynolds also spent some time in Franklin County. On February 15th, the first day that location data was recorded for him, Shane was in Red Bay. His Facebook data captured two locations in the area. One was in a parking lot and the other was at a local business. On February 20th, Shane's location was captured a large number of times in East Franklin County. The data shows him on the highway, sitting on the side of the road in a field, on the highway just in front of Jessica's uncle's home, and then at another residence, all in the Phil Campbell area. Next, he drove to Russellville, where he visited at least six locations that were well-known for drug activity. Two of these locations are places that Andre Newell was captured at in his Facebook location data. Shane was back in Russellville on February 22nd, but this time, the only place his location was captured was at a local business. On February 23rd, just after 11 p.m., Shane was on Highway 75 in Phil Campbell, and later that night, he was at a residence in the same area. Just after midnight, on February 24th, the Facebook data placed Shane in the middle of some woods in Phil Campbell. At 1.24 a.m., he was captured on the highway, still in the Phil Campbell area. The bottom line is there are clearly 
strong connections between Derek Motes, Alicia Motes, Eric Edwards, and David Shane Reynolds to the drug dealers and users in both the Haleyville and East Franklin County areas, and more specifically, to the people who were often said to have involvement in Jessica's disappearance and Jeremy Abbott's death. There's a woman who is often mentioned in connection to Jessica's disappearance. JoLynn Murphy lived in Haleyville for years, but at the time of Jessica's disappearance, she was living in Russellville. On the morning of January 3rd, at 5.42 a.m., Jessica messaged JoLynn. She said, You Hot Wheels? JoLynn replied, Yes. Jessica asked her if she was down to make some money, and JoLynn said, Always. Jessica told her, Okay then, after daylight, we gonna ride and pick up my plug, and we gonna get paid well for it. Seconds later, JoLynn asked, Where at? There's no further communication between the two of them in Messenger, although it's always seemed strange to us how abruptly their conversation broke off, considering that JoLynn seemed willing and Jessica was so focused on obtaining a ride for later that morning. We read you the message exchange with Jessica and JoLynn in an earlier episode. While we didn't name JoLynn at that time, we did tell you that her name is associated with another disappearance and suspicious death. 33-year-old Harvey Mickey Kilgore was last reported to be seen alive when he was dropped off with JoLynn Murphy at the Natural Bridge Motel in mid-November 2016. And I'm sure that you've guessed it. The Natural Bridge Motel, while no longer open, was just another version of the Haleyville Motel and the Greenwood Motel. Another man JoLynn had been in a relationship with, named William Bird Pearson, was also believed to be at the motel with them. While it's not clear to me when the missing persons report was filed, it was filed, and there were some searches for him. There's far more detail to the case than I can include here, but somehow the motel room they'd been staying in was remodeled with new paint and carpet after Kilgore's disappearance. On December 29, 2016, Kilgore's remains were found in a ravine off the side of Highway 278 East in Natural Bridge, less than a half mile from the motel, and it has been said that his body was found rolled up in carpet that was likely from the motel. Due to the decomposition of the remains, his cause and manner of death were undetermined. But there's one thing we know for certain. 
He didn't roll himself up in that carpet and put himself in that ditch. One searcher told us that they had personally searched the area where Kilgore was found at an earlier date and did not find anything. According to other qualified sources, Joe Lynn was the last known person to be with Kilgore, and because of that, she was a person of interest in his disappearance. To date, no charges have ever been filed against anyone in the death of Harvey Mickey Kilgore. On January 27, 2018, Jason Williams with the Haleyville PD sent JoLynn a message that said, Hey, I need you to call me ASAP. I need to talk to you, and you are not in any trouble. Call me. JoLynn replied about an hour later and asked him what was up. Instead of replying, Williams immediately tried to call her via messenger, but she didn't answer. Instead, she sent him another message that read, What's up, bro? He told her again that he needed to talk to her, but the exchange definitely leaves us with the impression that she didn't really want to talk to him. She asked him, About what? He sent her two more messages. He said, No one is in trouble, but I need to find Jessica Hamby. I understand that you and her was together not long ago. Joe Lynn replied with, I don't live in Winston County, and I don't talk to nobody there, so I have no clue. Sorry. Spoiler alert. She definitely talked to people in Winston County, but we'll revisit that later. Jason persisted. He told Joe Lynn, I understand she was in Russellville with you and some guy not long ago. You could help me out. Her mom is worried about her. Joe Lynn replied with what we know to be another untruth. I have never hung out with her. I only met her in jail. Other than that, never chilled with her. Just messaged on Facebook. She has never come hung out with me. Never. Real talk. I have no idea. Once again, I don't know what is going on. Sorry. Williams thanked her, and their conversation ends for a little while. About six hours later, Williams messaged JoLynn again. He said, Hey, we need to talk to you. Where are you at? Joe Lynn yet again asked him, About what? He told her, Never mind. We just came up with it. Sorry to bother you. She responded, demanding, So what is this all about, Jason? I'm lost, for real. I'm not understanding. Williams told her, No need to be lost. It's all good. But JoLynn still wasn't ready to let it go. She sent him another message that said, So what was it about, though? Because you messaged me saying that you need to talk to me about something. So what is it? Williams again told her, Never mind. I was going to see if you knew someone, but I got it. JoLynn said, Well, probably not. I don't live in or around 
Winston County. He asked her where she lived, and she told him she was living in Ripley, Mississippi. Ironically, less than 48 hours earlier, JoLynn made a Facebook post asking for someone in Russellville to give her a ride. The day before she told Williams she lived in Mississippi, she told a friend on Facebook that she was stuck in Russellville without a car at someone's house she didn't know. It seems to be a common tactic for people to claim they weren't living in the area when Jessica went missing. They seem to offer this early in the conversation and stick to it, saying it over and over again. You'll recall that Andre offered the same excuse when he was questioned by Kenny Hallmark. They also seem to forget a few important things when they use this as their defense. Where you live isn't necessarily where you were. The date of a missing persons report is rarely the date the person actually went missing. So if you already know you weren't in a specific place when it happened, how is it you know the date it occurred? And finally, if you were being asked where you were at a specific point in time, there's a good chance the true answer is already known. This was the last of JoLynn and Williams' online communications. But 19 days later, Hackleburg Police Chief Kenny Hallmark began to send JoLynn messages. On February 15, 2018, Chief Hallmark placed four messenger calls to her. None of them were answered. Next, he sent her a message that he needed to talk to her. This conversation was practically identical to William's attempt to communicate with JoLynn. She was difficult, ignored his request to speak to her on the phone, and ultimately, she went back to her packaged response. I don't even live in Alabama. Well, JoLynn, that's good to know and all, but I don't think they were concerned with where you were living right then because there's no doubt what state you were in around the time Jessica Hamby was last reported to be seen. We'll come back to this topic again soon. Chief Hallmark was persistent and kept telling her he needed to speak with her on the phone. One time she told him, talk here. He told her he could come talk to her in person if that would be better for her. Yet again, she told him she wasn't in Alabama. Hallmark told her that that was okay because he had a car. She apparently finally consented to a phone call with Chief Hallmark, but the call was answered by a man who introduced himself as JoLynn's boyfriend, William Bird Pearson. After a lot of accusations from Pearson that JoLynn was being harassed, JoLynn finally answered Hallmark's questions. He told her he had her messages with Jessica 
and he quoted from them. She stated that she'd never met Jessica in person. She had communicated with her on Facebook. She never made it to pick Jessica up that day, and Jessica never told her where she was or who she was with. Law enforcement did obtain JoLynn's Facebook records a couple months later in April 2018. Not only were JoLynn's communications with Jessica missing from the records, there were very few private messages in the records in the month of January at all. And the ones that were there focused on an event that happened on the night of January 2nd, 2018. JoLynn and two men were at a Walmart in Florence, Alabama. We do know the identities of the two men, but we won't call them out at the moment. But it's worth noting that one of them lived in Haleyville, which is in Winston County. You know, the place where JoLynn said she didn't talk to anybody. And the other guy was from Hamilton. They were allegedly seen shoplifting by a private citizen who pursued them into the parking lot to their vehicle and videoed the whole encounter. This man confronted them about stealing as the three attempted to walk quite swiftly to their vehicle, which was a small blue car, likely a neon. He caught up to them and demanded they hand over the things he claimed to have witnessed them steal. At first, the three denied it, but in the end, piece by piece, they emptied pockets, purses, and their pants with items that still appeared to have tags and packaging still attached. The video was shared approximately 700 times and it was widely viewed in the Winston and Franklin County areas. Many people who knew them publicly identified them in the comments on the post, and others claimed the same individuals had been caught on camera stealing from another store in the Tuscumbia area. One friend of JoLynn's messaged her the next day to tell her that she'd seen her on Crime Stoppers segment on the local news and that they had a reward out for her. JoLynn was pretty angry about all this exposure she was suddenly receiving, and she decided to contact the man who made and posted the video. She told him, Fuck boy, bitch. You were going to pay for this board night and day, laughing my ass off. Take down the video. This is your only chance. Keep in mind, she's threatening the man who pursued her and two men into the Walmart parking lot. He wasn't scared of them then, and he definitely wasn't scared by her threats. He replied back to her and said, Last chance for what? You should love me. I've made you famous. That video is still viewable on Facebook over five years later.
there's another enlightening connection with Jolyn. As we've mentioned numerous times before, on the night of January 2nd and the morning of January 3rd, Jessica was connected to numerous different IP addresses. There is one particular IP address that Jessica was connected to on January 2nd at 10.49 p.m. and on January 3rd at 12.02 a.m. and again at 1.31 a.m. on March 10th at a time when Jo Lynn was telling everyone that she lived in Mississippi she was connected to the same IP address. To clarify, this data would indicate that on March 10th, JoLynn Murphy was in the same location that Jessica was in just hours before her disappearance. From interviews conducted right around the same time JoLynn was interviewed by Hallmark, it seems that she was of little interest to them, possibly because they had no hard evidence to contradict JoLynn's statements that she never went to pick up Jessica. Here are some things we do know. We've been contacted by numerous individuals who have claimed to have spent time with JoLynn in various Alabama jails and all have related an eerily similar story. All claimed that JoLynn boasted about having knowledge and involvement in Jessica Hamby's disappearance, and that she specifically stated she knew where Jessica's body is. JoLynn was living in Russellville, which is in Franklin County at the time Jessica was last reported to be seen, and it appears she was still in a relationship with a man named Johnny Borden. That name might ring a bell for you because it's a name you've heard in Episode 9 when we discussed Chief Hallmark's interview with Andre Newell, a man who reportedly made similar statements as what many have reported was said to them by JoLynn. Here's what we told you at that time concerning Andre and Borden. Chief Hallmark asked Andre if he knew a man named Johnny Borden. Andre said, I don't know no Johnny Borden. Hallmark explained that Borden lived right beside him but Andre still didn't acknowledge that he knew Borden. It became apparent why Hallmark was interviewing Andre when he handed him a screenshot of a message that Borden had sent to someone and asked Andre to read the message aloud. But he must have been speaking low or mumbling because much of what he said is noted in the transcript as inaudible, but you can still get the gist of the message he was reading. It said that Andre admitted he hid Jessica Hamby's body. Miraculously and suddenly, 
Andre appeared to know exactly who Borden was. The transcript noted that Andre said, Oh, no, I didn't even know that she was missing. I was in Tennessee. That's what I'm saying. I was in Tennessee. I didn't know she was missing. He the one that was telling me she was missing. That's what they said. She was, you know. Another law enforcement officer with the last name of Miller spoke up and said, Hold on, hold on, hold on. Who told you? Johnny? But you don't know Johnny. Andre responded, No, I, now that I, I see the picture, I, I know Johnny from when he was over there on Washington Court, and he had said that she was missing. He had told me she was missing. As the interview continued, Andre admitted he did know Borden and that Borden had told him three or four weeks earlier that Jessica was missing. They point out to Andre that he originally claimed he didn't know Borden, and then he told them he found out Jessica was missing because Alicia called his wife. Andre appeared to tweak his story a bit more. He told them when he saw Johnny weeks earlier, Johnny asked him if he knew that Jessica was still missing. Hallmark asked Andre why they were talking about Jessica, and Andre said, no, he shot me the message. He said, that, that, that message there is what he sent me. I ain't write him. I ain't talked to him none that night. And he sent me a random message. He sent me a random message. Hallmark asked Andre if he pulled up his Facebook account, would he find that message in it as he described? Andre maintained that Borden randomly sent him that message. As the interview transcript concluded, Hallmark was having Andre log into his Facebook account from a computer, and the transcript does not indicate if they located the message Andre claimed Borden randomly sent to him. However, we do have Andre's Facebook records. If Johnny sent that message or any other message to Andre, there is no record of it. For the record, Johnny Borden has stated that he and Andre Newell grew up together in Russellville and that both in and out of school, they were good friends. If you'll recall from episode nine, Andre was questioned because people came forward to claim that he told them he helped dispose of Jessica's body. And these same people that came forward with that information also stated in their interviews that they had screenshots from Joe Lynn and others discussing picking Jessica up and other details that just aren't entirely clear from the transcripts. In our own interviews, we have been told that Andre and Joe Lynn were closely associated and that Johnny Borden and Joe Lynn spent a lot of time around Andre and his girlfriend at that time, a woman named Sally. Sally was in a relationship with Jesse Abbott 
in January 2018, right before she and Andre became an item. I don't know how you could forget this detail, but just in case, Andre was married to Alicia Moat's sister, and Alicia and Andre exchanged many messages in February 2018 that included photos of the two of them together, photos of Andre's privates, and other sexually explicit messages sent by Andre to Alicia. The bottom line is this. The irrefutable connections between all these groups of people exist, and the connections between them likely include both business and pleasure. We are not stating or even implying that any of these people we've mentioned are responsible for Jessica's disappearance, but we do know their statements to law enforcement contained far more lies than truth. With the puzzling focus of the investigation on Elgin Cochran Road, have these individuals and their lies ever been thoroughly investigated? Despite hard evidence to the contrary, Jessica's case appears to have been primarily treated as if she was on Elgin Cochran Road most of the night and morning and that she never left they're alive. We are struggling to make sense of this, especially in light of a screenshot that was provided to us. ABC 3340 reporter Cynthia Gould has covered the story of Jessica's disappearance numerous times, and she made great effort to meet and interview Alicia Motes. Alicia set up a time to meet Cynthia, but unfortunately, Alicia stood her up. In another instance of someone getting a hold of Alicia's phone, they took photos of messages that she sent to Cynthia. There was one message in particular that really caught our attention. It said, the investigator Tim Steen said that her phone did, in fact, leave there and said that her phone sent messages 10 miles from the residence of the Edwards. The ABI said it didn't, but Mr. Steen even has a map printed with the call technology of her phone that showed it did. Just when we thought that all the law enforcement agencies tossed the Nelos data in the garbage, we find out that apparently Tim Steen didn't, and he was openly communicating the truth about it. Why was his crucial and factual evidence ignored? The connections that we have laid out for you today, while compelling, are just the tip of the iceberg. There's some other individuals whose names are often mentioned, not only in Jessica's disappearance, but in other suspicious deaths, too. Join us next time as we continue to push for justice for Jessica and 
Jeremy. If you have any information that could help to solve the disappearance of Jessica Hamby or the death of Jeremy Abbott, please email me at secretscrime at protonmail.com or call our confidential tip line at 205-282-0740. Michael and I will ensure that all information gets to the right place right away. If you are left still wanting even more content, please check us out on Patreon. We have it filled with great information about Susan and Evan, Eric and Gypsy, and we will be adding additional content about Jessica and Jeremy. This podcast is an independent podcast. That means that everything that goes into making this podcast is done and funded by me. All of the investigative tools and resources are provided by Echo 7 Foxtrot. The tragedies we highlight and investigate have had a tremendous impact on the victims, loved ones, and friends. We don't burden them with additional expenses to cover their cases. We donate our time and talents because we want to help and hope to find the answers they need that are so long overdue. For as little as $5 per month, you can receive exclusive access to members-only photos, videos, early access to episodes, and much, much more. By becoming a patron, you too are helping us help these families. Patreon.com slash Secrets Crime. I'll also post the link on our Facebook page. If you are enjoying this podcast, be sure to follow or subscribe in your podcast player of choice and by giving us a five-star rating and review. We are active on social media and will often share photos of Jessica and Jeremy. Follow Secrets True Crime on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Secrets Crime. This episode was co-written by me and Michael Fleming. The audio production for this podcast is by Kane Power at precisionpodcasting.com. 